Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Command Space. I am your host, Mike Hurley, and I am joined today by returning guest, Mr. Marco Arment. Hi, Marco. Hey, how are you? I'm very well, sir. Thank you. How, and uh, thanks for coming back again. Anytime. I, I was, you know, ever since I ended my own podcast about a month ago, I've been just going through withdrawal. I have to get back on the microphone somehow. <laughs> I can imagine you're just jonesing for it now. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you've you finished Build and Analyze um, not too long ago now, a few weeks ago? Yeah, it was mid-December. So, um, do you know, you've, this has kind of pushed my last question to the, the front of the show now. Um, so I'm going to ask, you know, kind of what's next for Radio Marco? Have you been thinking at all about that? Uh, as a matter of fact, I have. I, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I ended Build and Analyze was that I, I felt it was getting kind of stale and repetitive, which I, I think most people can can agree that it probably was. Um, but I also wanted to experiment with different types of shows, different formats, different people, different topics. Um, and so I, I'm actually going to do that pretty soon. I'm launching a new podcast uh, pretty much any day now. I, I don't know. I don't even know. Maybe by the time this uh, airs, it might even already be launched. Well, um, this will air in like a couple of hours. So <laughs> unless you're ready to go oh, then right it definitely now. definitely <laughs> won't <laughs> Okay. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, maybe within a couple of weeks, uh, I'll probably be ready to do announce things. I always interview, I, I always have interviews with you right before I launch something new. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about yet. No. It's interesting. <laughs> I feel like you're you're trolling me. <laughs> well, it's your schedule. <laughs> or maybe do you just wait for me to email and then you're like, right, now I need to start something new. <laughs> yeah, I need to launch something two weeks later. <laughs> so that, that's what well, I'm. I'm very excited to to hear. You know, I won't I won't ask too much about it because obviously, you know, I, this is the first I've heard you mention of it. So I'm sure you're. Uh, this is the first I have mentioned it. I mean, it, it, it's not like, you know, I'm not going to like set the world on fire with this. It's just, it's just something fun. Cool. Well, I, I will, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got. So that, that means I can bring you back again and we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, in, in four more months. <laughs> in four months' time. So, you know, we, we were referring to the last time I had you on the show, the first time I had you on the show. We, were t- we spoke a lot about Instapaper and you had something um, coming around the corner that, you, you kind of mentioned you were working on a new app, and there was, you know, you, you were um, you were talking very loosely about it, and then there was like the Marco Rumors site popped up. Um, that was fantastic, which was excellent, and uh, it turned out to be the magazine, um, which I don't think I don't think anybody could have guessed that that was what you were doing. Because- yeah, really, nobody did guess it. I mean, I I was hinting at it for probably a month or two before before the launch. And I, I made a comment at one point on Twitter or something that, you know, once you hear it, it's really obvious. But no one guessed it in advance. Like, it, it's a really fairly simple idea of publish a magazine in Apple's newsstand uh, that's, like, you know, newsstand native. Like, it's iOS native. It's not just a pile of PDFs. Um, you know, it's not... 400 megabytes of downloading per issue just really simple text and occasional images uh you know html nice formatting and just publish a magazine of original content and that now it's very obvious <laughs> but at the time um and and you know now looking back of course that'll work you know of course you know i'll be able to find enough subscribers to do that because it's good but uh 
but when I launched it, I really didn't know that. And, and when I launched it, it was, I was viewing it as a very big risk mm-hmm. because it really wasn't done before. And I kept, th- you know, every time, usually like when, when, a, when a nerd like me has an idea, oh, I wonder, this could be a good, you know, then usually I go and I try to figure out if anyone's done it before, and almost always they have. And with this, I couldn't find anything that was a direct comparison to the magazine. When I was planning, I was like, you know, surely somebody had to have done this before. Like, where, where is it? Like, I, I can't find it. So, yeah, it has to be out there somewhere. And I really couldn't find it. And, and that's kind of scary when that's the case because it, for me, there's like three competing emotions there. There's one of doubt, which is, I, you know, maybe this is just a terrible idea. You know, <laughs> maybe that's why I'm not seeing any because it's a terrible idea. <laughs> and then there's there's fear of, you know, what if someone else is doing this at the exact same time as me? Because ideas, you know, there's the the principle of simultaneous invention. I think it's called where, and this is always a problem with patents uh, or patents, as you say, where, <laughs> uh, you know, that generally inventions are are pieced together from what's already in the world right before they're invented. So, you know, because they build on each other or, or an existing invention might suggest a new invention to somebody who's, who's thinking a little bit creatively. So inventions tend to be invented by multiple people at the same time uh, and, or around the same time. So, you know, all the pieces seem to be in place to do something like the magazine. And so I figure, well, surely someone else must be doing this too. I better hurry up and do mine and, and you know, be the first one. I, I always get that paranoia with with features, with products, um, with blog posts. So, so there's, there's the doubt, the fear, and then just the, the nervousness of, you know, what if this doesn't work? Like what, like, and, and it's, it's an excitement as well. You know, like this, this could be really fun, but then like, what if this is a terrible idea to divert like three months worth of effort I could have spent on Instapaper, uh, to this product that might flop and, might be a huge waste of time and money. And so it, it was a very exciting time this summer and fall when I was making it. And then I, I published the first issue and launched it uh, in October. And it worked. And people like it. And it's, you know, it's stable. So I'm, I, I've, I've been very pleasantly surprised and very happy with how it's done. Did anything about the launch surprise you at all? Did, there, well, did anything happen that you weren't necessarily expecting, good or bad? Yeah, actually, one of the big things that happened was just that subscriptions sh- just skyrocketed up during the first few days, and and now they're you know it's more leveling off, it's more growing at at, at the speed that you would expect a new magazine to grow, which is like steady, slow growth. Um, but for the first uh, few days and the first few hours, even growth was insane. I, I couldn't. I was watching the subscription roll in from the server, and I could not believe how many people were subscribing hmm. in the first few hours. And I was originally thinking, you know, this thing is going to burn money for six months. It's, it's going to, you know, it, it, and, and I said in the first issue that if it didn't turn a profit within two months, I'm going to shut it down. And that was a very aggressive timeline. Um, but it, it ended up hitting that break-even point in the first two hours of it being available. And uh, so that was shocking. I, I thought it would take a couple of weeks maybe to hit that point. And then maybe another six months before I could really start expanding. You know, at first there were no images, no photos, no illustrations. Uh, I was the only editor. Uh, you know, the, it was the only staff was me, <laughs> basically. And I was, I was thinking maybe in six months I can hire an editor to help out with this. And I was never thinking about photos or illustrations. 
now, uh, from issue five forward, we've been very photo heavy. We, I, I, we want to have a photo or an illustration for almost every article, if not every article. Yeah, no, it's um, and and like and we want to have photo cover art. You know, I, I had this system at the beginning because Apple requires every issue of a newsstand app to have new cover art. And, and you can tell all over, all over the uh, iTunes store and in newsstand, the cover art is used all over the place. You know, unlike other apps, which always just show their icon in the store, a newsstand app will always show the most recent cover art as its icon in the app store. I had wondered if it was something that was mandated because it, it kept changing, like the colors kept changing. Right. So I built this whole system at the beginning where to keep download sizes small, the app just had two templates, black text and white text. And I would just stick a, a background color under it, so we should go around the border and through that diagonal sash in the, in the middle of the logo. And so the only thing the server would have to tell the app is what color and whether the text was black or white. So it didn't have to send these big images down in each issue. So the, the issues uh, one through five, which didn't have cover art or photos, or one through four didn't have any, any images in them, the issues were like 17 kilobytes zipped. I mean, it was crazy how small they were. <laughs> and, you know, compared to you, know, you download an issue of, you know, one of the Condé Nast uh, magazine apps or one of the big ones, and it's 300 megs, and these were, you know, 17, 25 kilobytes. <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, but then, I, you know, as the magazine was going, I mean, this is probably one thing that, that I would say surprised me, but not quite at launch. But as it was going, we started shifting the focus. So, so what happened early on is I was able to hire an editor. I hired Glenn Fleischman. Um, probably after, I, th- I think he started mainly with issue four. And then issue five was when he really started doing most of the uh, editing and, and author work. And so I was able to hire an editor a few months ahead of where I thought I would, I would be able to, which was great. And then we, you know, we had enough subscriptions where, like, where we could say, okay, we're hitting our, our profitability goal here. That, you know, there's enough money here to pay us decent salaries and, and you know, to, to make it worth working on. And then we have this little block of extra. So rather than just keep it all and keep the magazine how it was for the first four issues, we decided to be more ambitious. And I said, all right, well, you know, how, how do we grow this? How, so do we raise the author pay rate? Do we add you know, illustrations, images, maybe videos, which is very expensive, as, as I'm sure you know? Um, you know? Do you add stuff? Or the more obvious choice, do you just add more issues or more articles? Maybe, maybe even publish weekly instead of every two weeks. And what we decided to do, you know, it turns out a lot of people, the, the, the most obvious choice was start publishing weekly. You know, publish more articles and publish weekly. And I decided against that. And I don't know if we'll ever do it in the future, but for now, that's, we're not considering that. Because. I, yeah, I like fortnightly. Um, America, you don't call it fortnightly, do you, in America? What, is it bi- well, we have a stupid word bi weekly, which, which is officially part of the language, but it, you can't use it because it's imprecise. Because bi weekly has been abused so much. Yes. That it officially ha- has both meanings of twice a week and every two weeks, so you can't really use it. <laughs> See, I like fortnightly, and I, you should embrace. I, I give you the word fortnightly to use, Marco, in America. I, ha- I have occasionally used it because I believe fortnightly is the only word in either American or your crazy British English <laughs> where it's the only word that unambiguously means every two weeks. But I, I like it um, at that frequency because it's not too much right and so that that's the problem we face like when we were considering whether to increase the number of articles we even 
Um, like in, in one issue, I think it was uh, six, maybe, we, we had six articles in it. And Norton, we started out with four per issue and then moved to five and then we tried six and six is just way too many. And it just felt – and it was just a very long issue. So we figured, all right, the, the best number of articles that we think in each issue is five. And then we said, okay, so should we publish more often? And it turned out, like you, a lot of people, you know, n- not only would publishing weekly be way more stress on, on my part and on Glenn's part, but, uh, and, and just way more work and would make it less worth doing, but also the audience. I, I got a few comments from people on Twitter and here and there saying, you know, leave it at every two weeks. We like it because almost everybody has at some point or almost everybody who, who would read the magazine at least, has at some point subscribed to a print magazine, either an iPad or an actual print, and the issues have just piled up. It, you know, what, and very common culprits are The New Yorker and The Economist for this. <laughs> very, very commonly people subscribe to one of these, or The Atlantic, or I, I, I even subscribed to Harper's for a while, and, and they just pile up because we don't really, you know, some people have time to read them all, and, and those people are very fortunate. Most people don't have the time or the attention span to read every issue of The New Yorker and The Economist and The Atlantic as they roll in. And so we found that by publishing every two weeks, it's five, so it's only five articles every two weeks, that's enough that people can read it. It's enough that they don't forget about it, it's enough that they feel good in their money's worth, and it's not too much that it overwhelms them and that it piles up. You know, and you can each article is usually between twelve hundred and twenty two hundred words. So, figure five of those. You can generally read an issue within forty five minutes if you really want to, um, or you know, an hour. You know, depending on how fast you read, it's not a very long read. So it is manageable, and and people aren't encouraged to skip entire issues or entire articles, and they don't feel guilt about. You know, having these things piling up. So we really feel this is the right publishing frequency for now. I think it works. It definitely works for me. Um, I remember you mentioning, mentioning, sorry, I'll build and analyze. Um, Dan was asking sort of about stats, and you were saying that you know you didn't really have any that you could measure um, because of the sort of there hadn't been enough um, issues released, and there hadn't really been enough time for Apple to give you the statistics. Do you feel like what you're getting from Apple at the moment is giving you any sort of measurement to readership and things like that? Well, I can tell at least how many subscriptions are active um, because that's all verified against my server. Like the way the way the internet purchasing works, they really want you to do server side verification for things like this, especially for subscriptions. So I ha- I always have a live updated number of how many subscriptions I have. And how many are, how many I've ever had, and how many are still valid? Basically, mm-hmm. um, I can't really tell obviously whether you know how many are in trial mode, but you can kind of derive that by just looking at how old it is and everything else. But um, yeah, for the most part, subscriptions have actually been pretty consistent. It, it's fairly easy for me to predict now. You know, what are we going to have in two weeks? Uh, I, I can generally predict that pretty accurately because growth has now gone from a weird, spiky, crazy mess to a nice line. Uh, so, so it's it's easier to predict now, and that's good because that allows me to know how much I can spend. So, you know, for instance, so as I was saying, like as subscriptions crossed over what the bare minimum that I needed to pay for all this stuff, we had this extra, and we thought, all right, well, you know, how how do you how do you spend the extra? So, rather than going for more issues, we decided to go for higher production values on the issues we have. 
So I was able to hire Glenn uh, and, you know, and hire him for a good amount of time each month so that now he can go back and work with the authors and do significant revision to the articles and really work to de- you know, develop them further, to edit them. You know, it, an editor is not somebody who just does typos and, and you know, bad punctuation. Like an editor works with the authors to really bring out the best in the articles and, and to refine them and, and to, you know, to have them rewrite and reorganize certain sections or omit certain sections to make the whole article stronger. And so now we have, we have the resources now to be able to do that. And so the articles are producing are better. And then we have copy editors who can, who can go through and fix sentence structure, punctuation, you know, wrong words, misspellings, wrong definitions. And, so, and now we also have a budget for uh, photos and original illustrations, which is fantastic. I, I, since we added those, it, it, has, it is so much more satisfying because at first I thought you didn't need them. Although at first I also thought it would be about technology. Uh, <laughs> that, that also hasn't been the case. But at first I thought, you know, all you, all you need is the text, and, and that's about it for most of this stuff. But I really enjoy seeing the photos. I enjoy the photo cover art. I enjoy seeing the giant banner photos at retina resolution at the top of the articles, which, by the way... <laughs> Trying to get uh, photo agencies to give you retina resolution rights is not easy. Yeah, <laughs> so, I remember the awkward conversation on Build and Analyze after the uh, after the ad for after Shutterstock. Yeah. <laughs> well, fortunately, I I was able to work with them. I I did negotiate that license, Good. but you know, retina stuff is so new, relatively speaking, to the to the photo licensing and wire agency and stock uh, uh, industries that. They really haven't had time to to do much with it yet to really say all right you know and and there aren't a whole lot of people asking you know so so for me to go to like Getty Images and say hey I, I need this at twenty forty eight pixels wide can you can I can I do that you know it's there aren't a whole lot of people asking that question yet uh, it was a similar similar problem to licensing fonts when I was when I was getting fonts for Instapaper um, you know now you're seeing a lot more apps with custom fonts but back when I was licensing. For Instapaper, there really weren't that many. It was much newer because iOS was only very recently able to support it in a way that wasn't buggy and horrible. So font foundries had no idea really how to deal with uh, app licensing. So we're seeing a similar thing now with Retina image licensing. But that just means that I, I more often just go directly to the photographer or in some cases I just shoot my own photos for, for certain things uh, or, we, or we we're able to use uh, Creative Commons licensed photos from Flickr. Um, which is a fantastic resource, and, and so yeah, we're, we're making it work. And then, of course, illustrations. We hire somebody directly to, and we just say, "All right, here's the output resolution we need." And uh, so it's working out very, very well. We're trying to have a nice mix of illustrations and photos in each issue. And uh, so yeah, so overall, we have we've gone from this magazine that was mostly about tech to and and had no images and and no editing really to speak of, except for me doing basic copy editing to now we have a, a pretty polished, much higher production value magazine that still has the same values. You know, we still, it's still not taking hundreds of megs. The, I, always, I always try to compress the images as much as I can without killing quality. So uh, the last few issues that I've had an, an image per issue have been like two megs per issue. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean an image per article. So, it, you know, you're, you're talking two megs instead of 300 megs. I think we're still doing okay. And... Uh, so yeah, so you know we're having higher production values, better quality, but it's still the magazine. It's still native to newsstand. It's still respectful of the reader's time and attention, to use a Merlinism, 
and uh, and it's still it still has our voice. And we've also shifted away from tech for the most part. And and you know when I la- this is one thing that really surprised me when I launched it. I mean, newspaper was supposed to be a thing where you printed out pages of RSS feeds to bring with you uh, on a plane. So <laughs> thing, things, things shift change. over time. <laughs> that was that was a terrible idea. Um, so when, when I started out, I figured the only, the writers that I'm going to be able to get are going to be the people I know in the tech blogosphere. I, I really just wanted to say blogosphere on a podcast. Um, you know, I figured that would be the the authors I can get. And so the magazine's going to be about tech. But it's, you know, I wanted it to be like loosely related to tech but also about other other things. So I wanted people who wrote about tech to instead of just writing about tech all the time, write about their hobbies that might be interesting to us. So, you know, write about photography, write about uh, journalism, you know, write about communities and and you know, other other hobbies or other interests that weren't just here's the latest Acer you know, tablet that nobody cares about and nobody will buy, um, except people who read The Verge. So, <laughs> no offense. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, that's how it started out. And then as it went, and, and as the growth surprised, surprised me, and, I, and as I was able to hire Glenn and, and, you know, work more with authors and, and raise the pay rate to authors, um, I was able to attract more writers that weren't just tech writers that, you know, magazine writers, freelancers who, who actually write for print magazines, you know, quote, real magazines, <laughs> whatever that means now. Uh, and so we were able to publish things of much broader interest. And I, and, and I noticed that the feedback we got by far, because the, the magazine very heavily encourages um, feedback by readers. There's share buttons in the app. We, we connect every author uh, to their Twitter and app.net, uh, if applicable, accounts. And so you can, you can send a message to the author right from the app, and, and it, it always mentions their name. Whenever you quote it, it mentions their name. So there's a lot of conversation and feedback with each article without just being comments, because I, I don't like comments, <laughs> which I've talked about many times before. <laughs> really? You? Yeah. <laughs> um, so all the feedback, by far, we were able to see that the articles that weren't really tech-related generally got way more feedback than the ones that were tech-related. And we would, we would get much more positive comments even from people who are like, oh my god, I never knew about that, or That's, this is really interesting, check this out. By far, the non-tech stuff is more popular. And it feels more satisfying to publish it, too. Like, I look back at some of, like, what I wrote, I wrote an article about uh, Android Anger uh, in, uh, I think, issue 5 or something like that, issue 4, and even looking back now, I don't think I would have published that in issue eight. Like now, given what the magazine has become now, I don't think it would be a very good fit. It might be. I might publish it anyway, but that's, that's kind of a dick move. I, I just, I'm not really sure I would. You know, because so, now that actually might be a little bit too tech nerdy. And so we've had this challenge now of the magazine has shifted into something else. But certainly that's not how it was sold to people. That's not how I originally even thought it would it would play out that's not what a lot of people want who have subscribed but it is what a lot of people want who haven't subscribed yet so now we've we've kind of shifted the what the magazine is and most people are very happy with it and i think certainly we're going to lose some people as, as we do less and less tech but i think we stand to gain a lot more people by the new focus and and it feels 
it feels better to publish this because this this feels more like a, a new path to take or you know untrodden ground rather than here's another tech magazine. And I think it's it's good for that. I mean, I think we don't need Wired again or or anything like that. Right, because Wired is already doing Wired. Yeah, and technology, you know, because of the fast-paced nature of it, lives better where it can be published instantly. And that's not what the magazine does, really. Exactly. So um, what what is taking the most of your focus at the moment, Instapaper or the magazine? That's a good question. I... You know, I, I, when I started out I, with the magazine this, this past summer, I knew that Instapaper would take a hit for a while as I, as I mainly worked on the magazine to get it going. But I also didn't want to just give up Instapaper or, or get rid of it or sell it. You know, I wanted to see what, what happened with the magazine and, and, uh, and then see you know, what I wanted to do next. And so I've recently come back now. So now I'm, I'm kind of back working on Instapaper. The magazine is, it, it was taking up the majority of my time for the last, you know, four or five months, but now I'm able to finally refocus on other pursuits, which is mainly, you know, my site, Instapaper, and my upcoming podcast, and whatever else, you know, other stuff I do. Um, my baby, who who's, who has a mixed sleeping record, <laughs> and, <laughs> and things like that, taxes. So um, I am, I'm planning on doing a, a pretty significant Instapaper release, um, this spring probably, so I'm starting. I'm laying the groundwork for that. I'm working on that. I, I want to do um, some new stuff with the text parser and things like that. So there's a whole lot to work on there, and I'm pretty sure this is this is going to be the uh, the the few months to do it. Cool. So I want to take a, a very quick break um, to thank our sponsor, but I've I've got a bunch more stuff. I want to ask you. Um, Great. I want to talk about contributors and stuff like that because we, we, we've touched on it, but um, I've got some things that I want to want to ask you. So I just want to thank Squarespace very quickly. They are a very loyal and awesome sponsor. Squarespace give you everything you need to make an amazing website. They provide you with all the tools that you need to build your home online, whether that be a website, blog, or portfolio. They have created a completely managed environment for you to use, um, which is fully hosted. Um, they build in everything that you need. You don't have to worry about scaling integration with social services like Twitter and Facebook. You don't have to worry about finding designers. You don't have to worry about finding and buying separate iOS applications. You don't need to worry about installing statistics managers like Google Analytics because it's all built into Squarespace in one package with one price. And that's one, that's why I love them. Um, you know, I don't need to, to worry about finding a designer, paying them a bunch of money to create something that I think looks good, and then finding somebody else to implement it because I don't understand that stuff. They have built-in beautiful templates. They're really clean. They let your content do all the talking, and they have responsive web design built right in. So no matter what device size you're um, going to a site from, whether it's an iPad, an iPad mini, an iPhone, a uh, Mac, it's just going to look fantastic because the site will automatically scale and um, maintain the beauty of the design that you've chosen. They have a fantastic page builder called Layout Engine, which allows you to create custom layouts for each of your pages in seconds. You just add blocks of content onto the page and you can drag and drop them really easily. It's very impressive. They have real-time analytics that are built right in um, and you can even access your statistics on their iOS and Android apps, but you can also manage and post to your site on the go there too. They have um, a blog importer, so you can easily bring over your site from elsewhere. And they have award-winning 24-7 customer support 
that will respond in minutes and they can help you with any issues you might have when it comes to setting up your account. I want you to go and try out Squarespace so you can see how awesome all of these features are and they've given us a free trial that we can give to you. If you just go to squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels, you can sign up for your free trial there. And if you decide to purchase a plan with Squarespace, it starts at $10 a month for the standard plan and $20 a month for their unlimited plan. If you sign up for a year, up front you'll get 20% off and if you sign up for two years, you'll get 25% off that monthly price. But you can also get an additional 10% off, so that can be off your first month or on top of any of the annual plan savings, if you use the code 70decibels1 at 70decibels1 at checkout, you'll get that additional 10% off. So go check out Squarespace, everything you need to make an amazing website. So, Marco, I saw you say on Twitter um, a couple of days ago that you, know, you were sort of... Um, talking about the fleeing Condé Nast writers, because there's been some issues over in Condé Nast <laughs> at the moment. And you were saying, to come on write for you. Um, and I just wonder, is this, like, going forward, is this the type of caliber of person you're looking for? I want the magazine to be as good as The New Yorker. And, and I, I know that, you know, we're talking about very different scales here. And I know that to have to pay somebody... Ten, fifteen thousand dollars for a feature article that takes six months to write, and you know trips and research and everything. That's above our abilities right now, but I would like it to not be in the future. So that's that's what I'm, that's what I'm aiming for, you know. And I don't know if that's realistic. I I have no idea if we'll ever get there, but I'm trying to. I I would love to get there, and. Even if we can't afford things like 15,000-word features that have been researched and, and win Pulitzers, uh, <laughs> even if we can't afford to do that, I think we can strive for that level of quality with what we can do, with what we can publish. So even if we can't afford to pay somebody for six months of research, I would like the articles to at least be as good and possibly be from some of the same people. As what you see in the New Yorker, the Atlantic, you know these these good magazines. You know, so that's my that's my quality standard. That's what I'm striving towards, and I think we can do it. And you know, we don't because we don't have to publish something that took somebody six months to write. Certainly, I, I, I'm sure very high quality writers because I know this because they keep writing for us. Uh, very high quality writers can write something in a week that we can afford. That's really, really good. And then we can polish it up and we can work with them in the same way a large magazine would, um, just on a smaller scale. So I don't think the magazine is ever going to replace anybody like The New Yorker, but that is my quality goal. And I do think we can attract some of the same people just at a different scale of work. You know, I've, you, you've mentioned it there, and I've heard you speak about it a few times, actually. So I think it might be something you're interested in, which is investigative journalism. Um, so, you know, people going in and, and, and doing a lot of research and stuff like that. I mean, is this something that, I mean, you obviously have your rates that you pay to people, but would you be willing to pay more for a pitch if, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of work that went into it uh, rather than just the writing and the idea? Definitely. Yeah, it's, I mean, the only issue is what what can we afford? But I am, but, you know, and we, we decided recently, you know, we're, we're kind of building up a, a rainy day fund uh, to to possibly fund something like this in the future. 
but even today, certainly, you know, if somebody has an idea where, you know, right now our standard rate per article is $800 US. So if somebody says, all right, well, for 800 bucks, I can give you this thing that I wrote in a week. Or for 2000 maybe I can, I can spend a bit more time and go down here and talk to them and stuff like that. We'll consider that. You know, we couldn't do every article like that. We couldn't afford that yet. But for for the occasional really good one, we would we'd be willing to consider that certainly. So talk me through the pitching process a little bit. So anybody can pitch an, an article to the magazine. So I guess they send in like an outline of what they're looking um, to cover, and then does that go to you to Glenn? I mean, how does that work? Um, most of it goes to Glenn first. Um, it's, you know, somebody could email me directly. That's usually not a very efficient way to get in the queue because Glenn <laughs> manages it. Um, so the best way is to fill out the form on the website, which then goes into a queue that we review. It actually goes into Fogbugs, a bug tracking system, because it turns out that a bug tracking system is a really good uh, system to also manage inbound pitches and and support emails and stuff like that. So uh, so at first it goes into Fogbugs. Glenn goes through. A lot of the pitches need clarification or elaboration. Glenn will work with them. At some point, uh, Glenn will decide whether to submit this to me or not for final assignment approval. And so he, he filters through, and then he shows me only the best. And then I say, yes, 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 no, no, yes, no. And, and so whatever I approve, he assigns. Then the writer does it, and then he manages everything, really, until it goes into the issue. And uh, I, I'll occasionally have some input as to which articles get published in an issue, but usually Glenn's deciding that as well. I was deciding it up through about issue four or five, I think, and he's taken over since then. Um, and then I'm the, effectively, I'm the photo director. So um, Glenn and I kind of together decide on illustrations. He's doing more of it than I am. And we also kind of kind of together decide on photos. I'm doing more of that than he is. So we, yeah. we kind of share the, the art direction uh, role a bit. And then you know, usually photos fall on me, illustrations fall on him to, to organize. Uh, and then, yeah, then we, we edit things, we publish, and then I do all the paperwork. I pay everybody. I process all the invoices, and, uh, and I work on the app and the website. So um, this is the first of our user uh, user listener submitted questions and this is from at to fierce and i wonder if you if you can answer this he's he's asked if you're willing to share um any of the worst pitches or you've re- you've rejected or you know anything that's come through and you've been like i'm just not gonna do that <laughs> no i got- can't do that well first of all i don't really know because glenn filters those out ah, before okay. i see them so, I figured so, as well that it might not be good for the guy uh, listening. That's more of a question for Glenn. You should have him on. <laughs> yeah, I'll ask him. Just get him to the horror stories of the magazine. But yeah, and plus, it's you know what? It, what really sucks, honestly, what really sucks a lot is the kill fee. Um, you know, I, I adopted a common practice among among good magazines is if they assign, if they say yes, you know, we'll pu- you know write it, we'll, we'll assign it to you, write it, and then we'll publish it. If it turns out to just not work out, then good writing contracts will usually include a kill fee, which is they will pay you the kill fee and then just not run it, just like a cancellation fee. Sorry, cancel the assignment, stop working on it. It's not working out for us. And usually it's like 25% or 50% or some, some, some low percentage of what the original fee would have been. We've had to pay a few of these so far just for articles that just you know, didn't, didn't end up fitting, didn't end up working out, you know, whatever the case may be. And that is ridiculously hard to do. I make Glenn do it. I can't do it. It's like breaking up with somebody. 
it's it, I I felt so guilty after the first kill fee. Like, oh my god. And I still, you know, we try to minimize that. You know, so, so that's why we try to do a lot of uh, of diligence before we say go ahead and do it before we before we assign uh, an article. Just because, just to avoid the kill fee, it's it is rough. I'll tell you what, man. It, it, like if you have trouble breaking up with people or firing people, you know that that whole thing. It is a hard thing to do. I guess that's good that you have Glenn, right? So you yeah, you can give him all the jobs. <laughs> I had I had to have him do it. I'm like you know you know if I was alone, I might be able to do it myself. But because I have Glenn and he's willing to, it's all right. You can do it. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's hard though. Because, you know, you work with, like, because originally you, you said yes, and these things, you know, you yeah. say, yeah, that sounds great. And then, you know, and it, a lot of times it just doesn't work out for reasons that aren't really anybody's fault. It's just like, oh, you know, I kind of thought this would be something else, or it turns out that, that like, you know, there wasn't as much substance there as you wanted in a certain area, or, you know, it, there's always, it, there's usually good, excusable reasons for killing the article, which makes it extra hard. Like you, it's not just like somebody was crappy or negligent. Like it, you know, it, it's like they actually worked hard on this. It just doesn't really fit. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. It make, yeah. It makes sense. Sometimes things just don't work out, do they? It's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. And and I, I would imagine. I mean, the writers who we've had to do this for have actually seemed to take it very well. Right. I, I think it was. I think I took it harder than they did. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's not me, it's you, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so last week um, I had Gina on the show and there was one thing that we were talking about and I said I was going to ask you this. And it's about the share to Instapaper widget, which is in the sharing menu. Like we were talking about um, how you know there are benefits to the way that Android does its sharing where you can kind of just share anything to anywhere. Um, and that's built in. But in, you know, the, the, in iOS, the sharing sheet if that's what it's called i assume it's probably something like that the, the little sharing pane um it's just just the standard things that ios dictates but you you put your own in there you in in the magazine there is a share to instapaper icon um, that's right how easy was that to to implement i mean because i've not seen other apps use it um it was so that 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 little menu you see there is new to ios 6 and and you, you know you see the same kind of style menu in Safari and and Mail um, that that it's called in the API it's called UI activity and so there's all these UI activity items that you that you can place you can you can register for certain ones you can create your own um, so that that whole structure of sharing menu if you if you're coding for iOS six it's very very easy it's actually way easier than the previous um, sharing methods were you know you pop up with like a maybe maybe you pop up an action sheet with the buttons share to twitter share to facebook whatever and every app did it differently and they all look different and they generally look pretty terrible <laughs> and uh so now ios 6 has this new unified extensible way to do it and uh so that's that's all that is is just a, a reasonable implementation of that what's going to be interesting though is you know right now instapaper the app can't register like a, a share handler system wide for other apps to use. Mm-hmm. So I can't, for instance, by having Instapaper installed, I can't have it inject its own share button into other apps' share sheets. That's that's the kind of functionality you get on Android and on Windows Phone in, in different ways. Um, you know, like Windows Phone calls it contracts, Android calls it, I think, intense, maybe? Yeah, I think it's intense. Is that? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, iOS doesn't have that yet, but. 
the UI activity system in iOS 6 kind of looks like that might be on the horizon. And, and there have been a few people who have noticed uh, the way that the mail, I think, sheet was implemented in, in iOS 6 uses XPC on the back end. And, and it's using some, something called a remote view controller, which I don't want to get too nerdy, but this basically opens up the possibility for iOS to have what Android and, and Windows have in this way, which is I could register from my app to have my share icon show up in all other apps. And so we'll see. That might be in iOS 7, maybe. Uh, we don't know. But it sure looks like they're laying the groundwork for that. So I'm very excited. I really hope they do that. I guess just what we need is another approval process, right? I guess that's just what you're after. You just want well, I mean, it would be part of the <laughs> app. You know, it'd be part of that approval right. process. So, how important was it to you to get to get this Instapaper sharing in? Oh, that was that was non negotiable. That that had to be there in version one. So, if if Apple said no, you can't have this in. We're not going to allow this. Would would you would it that have killed the project or? Oh uh, well, I guess no. I mean, but but I'm um, you know nothing nothing about the Instapaper share button there is risky or against any rules. That's actually exactly what Apple wants you to do. That, like that's that's the kind of sharing menu they want you to create now. So that wasn't a risk at all. So another um, question from one of our listeners um, with a unpronounceable username. So I'm going to just say it's Weeleep. Um, <laughs> do you plan to implement elements of design? from the magazine to future updates of Instapaper. Um, he talks about gestures. So you've got like, I, I assume um, they mean like pulling in from the, the left to bring up the um, sort of the, the navigation. And Wara CP asks, you know, are you going to see some things coming back? So like font options into the magazine, um, things like the auto night view and stuff like that. So are you going to be sharing design between the two applications? Yes, to some degree. Um, so, so for the latter, I'll answer first. Bringing more things from Instapaper into the magazine, uh, that's unlikely. Because, you know, what, what, I, what I got with the magazine was a clean start. And, you know, I've been working on Instapaper now for, oh, I don't know offhand, something like five years. Uh, I mean, it was in the App Store on day one of the App Store in 2008. Um, so, or actually it was like day three because I, I got behind in approval. <laughs> but it was, it was in the beginning of the App Store roughly speaking. <laughs> and uh, so I've had this app forever. One of the reasons why I'm taking so long with Instapaper 5.0 is because this is going to be the first time where I really am, am breaking away. I'm, I'm making it require iOS 6. Uh, I'm, I'm probably, I, I haven't definitively decided this, but I'm probably going to make it a separate app purchase. Um, so you can keep using the old version and if you want the new one, you have to pay again. Um, because I'm doing so many big changes and a lot of people aren't going to like them, but a lot of people are going to love them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, the, what I'm doing with Instapaper 5, I hope so far, is, is a big clean break and giving myself the chance to rethink certain things, to remove certain things, to redesign certain things. And the magazine was an even cleaner break. It's a whole new product. People had no expectations of what it needed to have before. There were no users that I was going to anger by omitting something in it. So, like one of the, I, I talked about this a little bit on Build and Analyze, but you know, one of the things that I omitted from the magazine was a full screen mode. I actually omitted this from Instapaper for a long time, and people hated that I didn't have it. <laughs> and you know, where you tap and all the toolbars hide or something like that. Mm-hmm. I've always hated those modes in, in other apps because they're annoying. Because like sometimes like you. You tap to make it go away, but you tap 
a millisecond after the automatic timer fired to make it go away automatically. So your tap brings it back up. And like there's all like there's little little annoyances like that about full screen modes or like okay, the, all the buttons are gone, you're scrolling through and you you scroll a little bit too small of a jump. So it's interpreted as a tap and all the buttons show up again. Or you're at the bottom and you tap to pull up the buttons and the app doesn't respond quickly enough. So you think your tap was missed and you tap again and then you get like this cancellation. It, it's such a pain. Oh, you tap as, the top and then it goes to the top of the screen. <laughs> right. Such a pain as, as a user. And, and certainly as a developer, full screen modes are also a huge pain. They, they make a lot of things harder than, than they need to be and there's a lot of bug potential. So I really don't like... So with the magazine, I just designed it to have such a minimal interface that most people wouldn't really care that it didn't have a full screen mode. So it didn't even need one. And I loved being able to do that. That was amazingly freeing. So it doesn't have one, and it feels great. It feels solid. It does what you expect. There's none of this like feeling out of control by the full screen mode hiding or showing, not responding properly to you or not, not doing what you intended. Uh, as a user, it's great. As a developer, it's amazing. To, you know, so it was a chance to have this clean start, right? Similarly, like font controls, as uh, the unpronounceable person asked about, um, Instapaper has too many font controls. Uh, it, it gives people the ability to create bad settings. <laughs> and, and I probably am going to leave them all there in 5.0 because I think people would just get too upset if I removed any of them. Hmm. But like one, one of the ones I, that I would love to remove is line height uh, because people generally set that badly in a way that they think will be good, but then it's actually harder for them to read, and they don't necessarily consciously realize that. And then it, this is just an app that's configured in a way that makes it hard to read. That, that's no good. So, uh, and, and also, the font choices. I would eliminate all the system fonts. I would, I would just have my custom fonts that I license because they're all way better. I would eliminate Baskerville because it's the least chosen font. But those like 10 people who use Baskerville would be really upset if I did that in Instapaper. So with the magazine, I was able to have one font, just the one I thought was the best. I had two color schemes, the two I thought were the best. I would get rid of sepia mode and Instapaper, by the way. I hate that, but other people, but enough people love that that I really can't. Um, but you know, with the magazine, I, I had this clean start. So with Instapaper, I, I you know I, I'm going to have a a kind of clean restart with 5.0. I'm not going to really be able to remove much, um, but I will be able to change a lot. You know, I can change the interface. I can change things. Certain things are going to be problematic, though, because like things like gestures. The way the magazine has this slide-out pane of listing articles, that's going to be hard to do in Instapaper because so many people use pagination. And pagination interprets the gestures differently. Then you have swipe gestures to turn, to, to turn pages. So... I, I'd have to either not offer the pull-out to view the article list gesture or change it so that it only works when pagination is off and then in pagination have a different way to pull it out. Um, and that's kind of crappy. Yeah, that doesn't you know, really so, work. <laughs> so like Instapaper, it just has so many more features and there's so many fewer assumptions made in it. You know, the magazine is always showing content that I have full control over. I can edit the content. I can make sure it doesn't have any additional cruft uh, or any weird layout issues. 
With Instapaper, I have less control. I don't know what you're going to be reading. I don't know if, if the text parser is going to have a perfect parse of that page or not. And there might be junk above or below the article. There might be weird images that show up that probably shouldn't be there. Or there might be images, if I'm too aggressive with the parser, that are missing. So, you know, there's, there's all sorts of conditions there. You, you, you know, you could have this, the font setting set really weird to something that I, that I didn't expect. You know, some tremendous setting of Baskerville that's the, as high as it goes, and you only ever view it in landscape with sepia mode. Like that's, I don't, I'm probably not going to test that very well. And so there's all these conditions, all these exceptions, that Instapaper has to deal with that the magazine doesn't. So there's going to be a lot of designs and features that I can't bring over to Instapaper because the app just doesn't fit with that. It, it wouldn't work. There, there are some, there's some kind of exception or condition or combination of factors that will make it not work well at Instapaper. And you know, one of the things that, that differentiates Instapaper from its competitors is that if I can't do a feature well, I won't do it. And that angers a lot of people. A lot of people want that decision to be on them, the user. So you know, if I have a feature like, um, see, I think a while ago, I don't know if they still do it, a while ago, Pocket had a feature called uh, Dispatch or something where they would automatically categorize your articles into topics of, based on their text. And it was based, on, based on, a, uh, uh, on a popular algorithm that does this. My background is actually in search clustering. I, I, I worked at a company in Pittsburgh before I came to Tumblr uh, called Vivisimo that their whole business was topical clustering. I'm very, very familiar with that world and I chose not to do that in Instapaper because it doesn't really work that well for that kind of input. For when you have no, no other real input with relevancy or things like that, it's really hard to do that. And when your input is general things from the internet, not like medical documents from this one source or you know, everything ever published by the patent office. Like you know, When you have a narrow domain, you can do topical clustering in a way that works fairly well. When your domain is the entire internet and any article somebody might possibly want to save, it doesn't work that well. And I, and I know that. And so I've, like, that's, that's a kind of feature where no matter how many people request that, I'm not going to do it because I know it doesn't work. And people who, you know, like I wrote a while ago, uh, back when the Surface launched, that you know, Microsoft's philosophy, well, Apple's philosophy is, is very controlling. Apple's philosophy is if something is going to suck, we're not, we're not going to even let you do it, or we're at least going to try not to. Like, we're going to protect you from that by removing options, removing freedoms, removing abilities, so that what you get is something that works very well. Microsoft and, and Android, actually, you know, so with Windows and Android, the philosophy is we're going to give you a lot more control as the user, and we're going to let you do a lot more. We're going to let your software do a lot more. Everything's going to be more Wild West. But it could suck. And if it sucks, it's your problem. And we're, and we're not going to prevent it from sucking. And we're not going to prevent things from being malware or stepping all over certain resources. You know, that's all on you. It's, it's more of like a hands-off, you know, free market, libertarian kind of approach. And those both attract very, very different customers. And a customer that wants the opposite of what they chose is generally very angry about, <laughs> about what they chose or very unhappy with it. And, it's, and that, that gap will never be resolved. There's never going to be something that satisfies both of those camps in, in most markets. So 
Instapaper is always going to be the more Apple-like one of those because I, I prefer that. I, I'm going to be more controlling. I'm going to give people fewer options, fewer freedoms, fewer abilities, but I'm going to implement what I do implement as well as I possibly can, making sure that it's very, very hard to create something that sucks. And it's very hard to see random weird failures of either my software or the user's habits. Which works. So you mentioned other platforms right now. This is a question that is asked of you a lot. You know, people want to know, are you going to bring the magazine to other platforms? And I had this question in a different um, form to what I have now because of that Droid Life article that appeared <laughs> that appeared last night, which was a shame. And, I mean, I I... I am a fan of Android, um, and and I like to look at other platforms. We have another show called Bionic on the network where we look at we look at things outside of Apple, and must be horrible. It, it's it's a good show. It's a good show, and and Android has its has its moments. But the problem, some of the problems are, so, as with all of these communities, you can get people that are nasty. And this Droid Life article was kind of embarrassing, really, for for that. You know, f- for the Android folk, and basically just panning you really <laughs> in an unprofessional way, which is a shame. And uh, but you know, so I you kind of tweeted, and you've got a tweet here that says, "When people ask me whether I'll port the uh, the magazine app to Android, I'll just send them that link and ask what they think I should do." So I mean, I assume really. I, I mean, I know I've seen you say before that, and the next web had issues, didn't they, with their magazine? And it seems that. There are still parts of um, Android from a development perspective that make these things difficult. But I guess as well, the the issue that you and the Android community have <laughs> is probably going to continue to keep you away from there for this application, right? Well, I mean, there's a few issues there. You know, one, obviously, like when you look at the next web, they were, their whole thing was they published their magazine on both iOS and Android and they recently discontinued the Android version, basically saying that it was being downloaded uh, less than eighty times as much. <laughs> or, yeah, it, like it was like it was a ratio of one to eighty to iOS downloads. Yep, that's correct. I'm looking, at and and that's pretty rough. And you can look at that and say, well, the next web also publishes a whole lot of Apple news, so you know maybe their audience isn't all on Android. You know that that makes some sense. I would imagine a place that's named Droid Anything will probably have a better ratio than that if they publish on both platforms. <laughs> You'd hope so, but, really. But, you know, I think Android is, is a very weird platform in number, and certainly iOS has its problems as well, but the Android market size and, and how they respond to things is very odd. You know, we see this weird disconnect where... Android by unit sales has a ton. It's, it's ahead of iOS in almost every market, and it has been for years um, in, in raw unit sales. But then you look at the web browsing stats of you know, how many, like by various companies that release the stuff every few months, and it seems like iOS is always significantly ahead of Android in those. So iOS is disproportionately being used to browse the web way more than Android which is the opposite of what you'd expect by their sales figures. And so what this indicates is that a lot of people who buy Android devices, like a lot, not, not, not like a little silver, a lot of people who buy Android devices don't use them to browse the web. And it's th- this factor, you know, a lot of people have different explanations for it. My theory is that 
you know, Android's rise in popularity corresponds, especially in the U.S., corresponds extremely well to when Verizon started making their Droid brand and pushing it very, very heavily in both advertisements and in the stores. You know, if you, and this is a big problem for Windows Phone, uh, and, and I think it kind of helped kill uh, the Palm Pre as well. Um, if you go into a cell phone store, in the, and you know, John Gruber talks a lot about this, so I don't want to go over it too much, but if you go into a cell phone store in the U.S., which is how most people still buy their phones, uh, every two years you know, we have these massive subsidies. And uh, so every two years you go to your Verizon store and you get whatever the salesman talks you into. And the carriers, had, especially Verizon, for, for so long they didn't have the iPhone, so they had a very strong incentive to develop their own, their own competing brand that was very strong. So that's why they developed the Droid brand, and they're pushing it very heavily. If you go into a Verizon store and say, I want the newest iPhone, in almost every case, they're going to try to talk you out of that. They're going to say, oh, you don't want that. The iPhone sucks. You want this Android thing instead, the, the new Samsung Galaxy 10,000, whatever. And this is way better and all these different hardware specs. And look, it's bigger and you know, all this stuff. And that works a lot of the time. The, the bigger problem is not with, <laughs> with iOS but with Windows Phone and with Palm Pre. If you go in there saying, oh, I've, I saw a commercial for this new Windows Phone. Let me, you know, I want to see it. They're really going to talk you out of that. Because at least on the like, if you go in wanting an iPhone, there's probably some more recognition there. That, you know, that if the iPhone's been around forever, it has very strong brand recognition. People tend to want specifically that. If you go in showing any interest whatsoever in Windows Phone or any new thing that comes out, uh, you probably you're probably a lot less devoted to it mentally, you know, because <laughs> it's it's newer, it's not as strong, not not very popular. Uh, you go in there asking about that, and they will almost every time again try to talk you into a Droid because usually the uh, salesman is being paid mm-hmm. a bonus for every Droid they sell and only for Droids they sell. And there's all sorts of these these spiff I think they're called these these incentives for the retail sales. It, it, it's a whole mess. Anyway. A lot of people buy Android phones who don't use them as computers. And so it sure looks like, it, that, you know, like a lot of people go in wanting just a regular flip phone. Like a regular phone, they don't, they don't care about browsing the web on it, and they get talked into it because there's all these incentives, you get the higher paid data plan. So you, get, you have a whole market of people who have these phones who basically use them to make phone calls and, and you know, take pictures. And not much else. So the Android market is huge, but if you're trying to sell an app to people, the number of people who ever will even download any apps from Android is itself not that great of a percentage, as far as we know, of all Android devices. And then the number of people who will pay for them is way, way lower. And I don't think we really know why that is, but I think it's pretty clear that is the case. It's difficult because it's hard to... There aren't really numbers. It's difficult to point to and say this is the percentage or, you know, like, for example, we spoke last time, you know, I looked on the Play Store and could say that your app had been downloaded less than 50,000 times because they have, like, these brackets. And that's still the same. And I'm sure that you have many more than 50,000 iOS downloads. Um, but, But then, you know, you wonder... Is it because the market's different? Like, what is it? And it's really that there isn't, there aren't metrics. They just don't exist. So it's so tough to try and match these these things up and, and try and say, oh, this is why, and you know, and look at it that way. Because all we've got is just our own theories. Exactly. And but what I what I do have 
is a big data point. Uh, I have Instapaper sales on Android. Yep. And, and, and I should point out, too, you know, my, my problems with the, quote, Android community, uh, obviously a lot of, a lot of Android uh, fans don't like me because I say things like what I just spent the last 10 minutes saying about <laughs> Android. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm faced with the reality here. I, Instapaper makes most of its money by the sales of the app. And the Android sales pale in comparison to the iOS sales. So it's very hard for me to say with any kind of enthusiasm, oh, I can't wait to go to Android for the magazine. You know, like, yeah. it's just, look, this is the data point I have. It seems like no one else is really reporting massively different data. You know, you're right that it is hard to find good numbers on this, but there are occasionally developers who will report, who have, who have their app on both platforms, who will report how well it's doing relative to the other platform. And I really don't see a whole lot of those that are very much in favor of Android. And, and so, it's, so I have that to look at. I have my own data to look at. It just looks to me like if you're in the business of making something that you're charging people directly for, that's, that's not just free and ad-supported or, or some other, or, or VC-funded or, or some other model, uh, Android is just a terrible place to go. You know, it, it's not, not even kind of worse. No, no, it's, it's terrible. Like, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to justify a business uh, doing that with Android with, if, if, that's, if, if you have to make money directly from the people who are, who are downloading it. So since both of my businesses are that model, there's just not much on Android that I need, that I need to be paying attention to, and this this is very infuriating to people who love Android, who who want well, you know, because you know the number of people who will buy something on Android isn't zero. You know, there are people who will buy it, and they will tell me too. Well, I bought it, you know, and it's frustrating, you know, for for them to hear this, for for uh, anyone else to hear this who loves Android, but that's just how it is. That you know, I I, I can't really say that the data is biased. You know, like the data is the data, and I have my data to look at, and I have other people's data occasionally, as I said, and and it just looks like the market for paid things in Android is just very, very weak, and and it does not have much uh, correlation at all to the massive market share that Android has. Because I'm sure if there's one person in this whole um, scenario that wishes that more people would buy the magazine on Android is you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you could so so I do intend to broaden the magazine's um, platform base to the web. Uh, I, I do intend to have web subscriptions at some point. Interesting. Um, probably soon. I don't know. It depends on when I get to it, and you know, there's a lot of things competing for my time right now. Yeah. Um, but I I do intend to do that, and heck, I'll see if there's a whole lot of people browsing from Android. Maybe I'll change my mind. But uh, I'm betting there won't be, and. I'd I'd love to be proven wrong on that, but the fact is, I, I think I think the two platforms that you need to care about in a, for a paid app are the web and iOS, and iOS is more important of those two. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and that's that's a very unpopular opinion among certain groups, but that's that's what the numbers say. That's that's what the results say. And so, again, you know, this isn't true for every possible type of app, but certainly a lot of them. And and I I think it's worth pointing out too. You know, I always get raked over the coals among the the Android website reading community. Um, even when even when I launched Instapaper for Android, the comments on the launch posts, like I, I gave an exclusive to the Verge and I had them do like a review of it and everything. Even the comments on that were terrible. 
and you look at the comments on every single <laughs> every news article that mentions anything about Instapaper on Android is full of ridiculously nasty comments. People hate and you. <laughs> Unfortunately. They, they really do. And and you know, but it's important to point out too that Android has these two different markets. And iOS does too, but I think with Android it's more pronounced. Um, it's the people who read these sites who are really huge fans of Android. And then there's everyone else who owns an Android device and doesn't really care that much or doesn't care as much as these people. Um, and so I know, here I am, a guy who writes a website that often criticizes Android and other people, but they don't see that. Um, <laughs> a website that often criticizes Android. Um, I have a podcast that I often criticized Android, and now I'm criticizing it on your podcast. Uh, there's going to be people who, who are going to really, really resent me for this. And that's fine. You, know, you can't please everybody. Um, so there's nothing I can do about that. Those people are going to be very angry at me regardless. They, though, are a very, very, very small percentage of the Android user base. And what I see most with Android, if, through Instapaper sales, through support emails, what's very clear about Android is that the vast majority of people who are using it are not those you know, super fans who are going to be reading a site that has Android in the title. There, it, it just not. Those people are a very, very, very small minority, and the disconnect between their opinions, ideas, and behavior, and the opinions, ideas, and behavior of the Android user base at large, is a very, very big difference. And so, how how well I'm doing with those people doesn't really reflect how well I'm going to do or am doing in the Android marketplace. And so I have to mostly ignore them. And, and that also angers them to a great degree. But uh, you know, I, I think I've reached a point with them even long before I had released an, an Android app. I think I reached a point with, with that community where anything I do is going to be heavily criticized and flamed and everything. So you know, th- their, biggest, their biggest problem with me right now is that Instapaper for Android costs money. And that my main competitor in Android Pocket is free. Um, so what if I made it free? What What do you think would happen? I can I can guarantee you what would happen. A, I would probably discontinue the app, and because neither Mobilux nor I would have any incentive to keep it supported and running. Um, but even let's say somehow we find a way to pay for it. All right. So financial concerns are out of the way. If I made the Android app free, two things would happen. First. I would get a massive influx of new users who I had to support with my hosting bill every month, which is currently at $7,000 a month and is going up. Um, oh, no, more than that now. It's more like eight. Anyway, so okay, so $8,000 a month is what I pay to host Instapaper. That's before any kind of staffing, taxes, insurance, everything. Before all that, just hosting. So that number would go up probably to at least nine or ten. Uh, so there's that, and then... All these sites, all these, this whole audience of people who have been flaming me for months for charging money for an app on Android where something exists that's free, they would all say, oh, yeah, but Pocket is still better in these ways. You don't need to switch. And, oh, well, you know, now... Like, it, it, they would complain about something else. So I can't win with that crowd. I have no incentive to try. And I have way more incentive to leave things the way they are, which is... Mobilux makes my Android app for me. 
they're great. They devote some time to it as, as, it's, as it warrants. I focus on the iOS side and the web side, and that's where the vast majority of my attention goes. With the magazine, I have nobody. I, I have no incentive whatsoever to bring that to Android because that's even more expensive. That's not just three dollars once. That's two dollars a month. The chances of that being well received on Android are so horribly low that I'm not even going to try. I I, I really. I don't foresee ever bringing the magazine to Android. I, I can say that with confidence. I, I really don't think it's ever going to happen. And it's sad. I would love to. I would love to have another platform full of potential subscribers. But I really don't, th- I don't see any evidence whatsoever that that's actually going to be the case for me if I try it. So I'm not going to. There you go. You can put a bow on that answer. So I have one last question for you, Marco. And this comes from at Apollo Zach. Um, and he asks, do you, do you think you'd ever have any plans for a print edition? Like maybe as like a one-off, like a, I don't know, like a Christmas special or something, to do a print edition of the magazine? I'm not really sure yet. I, I don't have any plans right now to do any kind of regular print edition, but one thing I might do is like a best-of compilation. Yeah. You know, may, maybe once a year or every six months release like a best of comp. Because, you know, right now, if, if you printed out an issue of the magazine, it would be like seven pages long. You know, it would, <laughs> it's it would like re- a pamphlet, really. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so, you know, what I might do, though, is like a best of, maybe, maybe like sell it as an ebook in the iBook store and then on Kindle and everything else. Um, haven't really decided that yet, honestly. We haven't even had time to, to consider it. But I would probably do that first, the, comp- the, like the electronic compilation before I would do print. Um, print is a, is a whole crazy, expensive, um, high overhead world that I don't understand and probably can't afford. And I, I think I'd rather keep it that way. Yeah. Or just send it to Kickstarter, right, and just be done with it. I, I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, I just... I, print, it, print just seems like a big step backwards for the magazine. Yeah. And I know some people really enjoy reading on print, but I bet among magazine readers and subscribers that number is probably fairly low and probably does not make it worth the very high cost and time to do it. Yeah. But a best of compilation, that that really might be worth doing. So that that, you know, we'll see. See how that goes. That'd be fun. So thank you, Marco, again, uh, for joining me. It's all, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh I look forward to bringing you on again in another few months' time to talk about the last things that have happened. (laughs) (laughs) So what's uh, what's a good place for people to find out um, about your endeavors? I'll just go to marco.org. Excellent stuff. And you're obviously on Twitter as well. You're Marco Arment there. And uh, you can follow me. I'm iMike, I-M-Y-K-E, on Twitter. Are we still doing app.net, or is that over? Uh, I like to say it's not, but... I would also like to say that, but I'm not sure I can say that. I think that, I mean, and, and, and I spoke to Dalton about this a while ago. I think that the way that we're currently using it is not the way that we would use it if it was still around in 12 months. I think it would be used for different things. Like they, I think so too, because like it's right now it is just we're using it just like Twitter. Yeah, and that's but, I think that's wrong, and I don't think they want it like that. They like. Dalton kind of said to me that they just made that to show that it can be used so people would back it. Um, but I think like their their direct messaging, you can have like multiple recipients. So 
I see that for me as a, a real good group conversation thing like Glassboard. Um, and, and that kind of works for me. Like I imagine like the next conference I go to, I could be using app.net private messaging as a way for everybody to keep in touch. You know, you could you could quite easily set something like that up. And that's different to, to Twitter really because the direct messaging isn't as advanced. And I just think that if the company is still around by the time the next funding comes up, um, which I hope that they will be, I think that we'll be using it for different things and not as just another timeline interface. Yeah, I think you might be right. I, I'm curious to see how that how that plays out. But uh, you're Marco there, right? That's right. And and I'm I Mike there again because I didn't want to have to announce things twice, but I do for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone saw it as a fresh start and got a new name, but we'll see. It's an interesting thing. So, uh, yeah, so next week we're going to be joined by um, Sean Blanc, and um, the tentative title for the episode is a full time masterclass. So, um, we're going to be talking to Sean about the types of things that you know you, you have to think about doing before wanting to take a project of yours full time. And this came from um, I heard him talking on his show a while ago about the way that he budgets and things like that, and, and the way that he was thinking about things like that when he took his, his business um, full-time with his website. So tune in for that. It will be an interesting episode. Thanks again to Marco for, for joining us, and thank you to you for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. Thanks. <laughs>